Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Glad you're here. We're going to start a new book this evening. We're starting the book of Judges. If you need a Bible, Richard's up with Bible in his hand. Just raise your hand and uh, he'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. I, uh, I shared this a while back. They only have a couple more books that I haven't taught through the Old Testament. And uh, Jeremiah is one of them. And so I really, I was going to head into Jeremiah, but I thought, you know, we just finished Joshua. Let's do Judges, and then after Judges, then we'll hit Jeremiah. So at least I can say, uh, if the Lord doesn't come back before then, I can say I've taught through the whole Bible. And so I'm just a few more books, but uh, just to give us, you know, a little uh, sense of direction and, and follow along where we're at from Joshua, we're going to go into the book of Judges. Um, some exciting things. Happening this week, uh, you know, maybe you heard about President uh, Trump's announcement to uh, uh, withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. And that caused a little bit of uproar, obviously, from uh, Iran. They weren't too happy about that. And uh, right after the announcement, I don't know if you caught this, the Israeli, Israeli Defense Forces deployed its air defense system to its northern borders, instructing northern authorities to unlock and ready public bomb shelters after reports of irregular activity of Iranian forces in Syria. And so the announcement comes out. They got the Israelis find out, hey, there's, there's, looks like they're planning something ready to go on. Uh, a spokesperson for the IDF released a statement. The IDF has detected irregular Iranian activity in Syria and is preparing the civilian population on the Golan Heights accordingly, as well as defensive systems. Any aggression against Israel will be met with a severe response. And that, that's, we went to bed last time thinking, wow, I mean, am I going to wake up in the morning and hear something happen? And, and, uh, but then this morning, the alert's been canceled. But it just shows just how uh, radically things could change at any given moment. I don't know if you heard this today as well, that three Americans held in North Korea are now on their way home, are expected to arrive in Andrews Air Force Base at 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, President Trump has said he would be there at 2 in the morning to meet them. Uh, coming home. And, and I would say our president is really making a difference in what's going on in our country today. And we need to be praying for him. I mean, he's making these bold statements that are going on and, and uh, you're doing what's right for our country. And you know what? Some of our enemies aren't going to like it. And so, you know, who knows what, what's going to happen. But I know that uh, um, we've seen ups, ups and downs. That's, that's somewhere like Proverbs 14.34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And we've seen our nation both ways. You know, we've seen righteousness exalt the nation. Man, we're doing those things that are pleasing the Lord. And then we've seen sin, you know, just a disgrace to any people. And we've seen that. And so we just need to be praying, you know, that the Lord would give our president wisdom, that we continue to, to give those that help make him, him, help make him make these decisions, give them wisdom, help them to be believers that are really seeking the Lord and, in response to these things. And, uh, but really, that's why we get into the, to the book of Judges this morning. We really see, a, this, this morning, this evening, a parallel between what's gone on in, in, in Israel and, and what's gone on in our own country. And so, uh, as we begin, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather this, this evening, Lord, to open up your word and to just learn from you. Lord, we know that as we open your word, your Holy Spirit is, is present in our lives to teach us, to give us understanding, to give us application. And so, Lord, we, we, we pray for that tonight, Lord. We pray that um, we have ears to hear what you have to say to us. We thank you, Lord, 
for this building you provided for us. I thank you, Lord, for the worship team, Lord, that you have for us, Lord, just to uh, to bring us into and enter us into this sweet uh, place of worship uh, of you, Lord. And so we're grateful for that, Lord, and I'm grateful for the people that you brought out this evening as well. And so, Lord, we just want to praise you and worship you and, and thank you for this time. Lord, we give you the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we know the book of Joshua rings out in victory. Victory after victory as Joshua leads the people into the promised land. We saw picture after picture of, of, of Israel living lives of victory and how we too, you know, today can live in victory as we take and learn the lessons from the book of Joshua. But now as we come to the book of Judges, we're going to see the sad cycle of sin that, that starts uh, with the children of Israel. Now, we know the cycle by four R's, if you're taking notes. Rebellion, Israel sins. Then, number two, there's retribution, as Israel is forced to serve her enemies. Then comes, number three, repentance, as Israel turns to God for deliverance. And then, restoration, Israel is restored once again. There you have the book of Judges. We're going to see this, but uh, uh, but it's the same cycle of sin that can enter into our lives if we don't do something about it, if we don't break that cycle of sin. You know, we rebel against God in sin, we face the consequences, we ask God for forgiveness and we're restored, but then it's like we start that cycle of sin all over again. But the way of breaking that cycle of sin is just not stopping doing what you're doing, it's doing something else in its place. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.28, let him who still, him who stole still no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give who has need. So if you're a thief, you've had this problem of stealing, okay, it's not enough just to say, I'm sorry, Lord, I repent. Here, do something else. Start working with your hands and, and give something to those who have needs. He says that no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. So instead of you know, having a mouth that just made corruption and just, just taking the Lord's name in vain, now let everything that comes out of your mouth be good, necessary for edification, imparting grace to the hearers. That's stopping the cycle of sin. It's not good enough just to stop it and say, I won't do it again, Lord. But now it's doing something else, putting something else in its place. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. But he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. So we see just that that's how to do it. But Israel never broke that cycle. And as a result, they had to face some serious consequences. I think one word to to summarize Israel's problem over and over again is, is that of compromise. They failed as a nation in what God has called them to do because of compromise. And that really is, 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 I mean, one message to be found in the book of Judges is that compromise leads to sin. And sin doesn't pay. Sin will destroy you. Gary Richmond, he's a former zookeeper, had this to say. Raccoons go through a glandular change in about 24 months. After that, they often attack their owners. Since a 30-pound raccoon can be equal to a 100-pound dog in a scrap, I felt compelled to mention the change coming to a pet raccoon owned by a young friend of mine, Julie. She listened politely as I explained the coming danger. I'll never forget her answer. It'll be different for me. And she smiled as she added, Bandit wouldn't hurt me. He just wouldn't. 
Three months later, Julie underwent plastic surgery for facial laceration sustained when her adult raccoon attacked her for no apparent reason. Bandit was released into the wild. He says, the moral of the story is this sin too often comes dressed in an adorable disguise. And as we play with it, how easily it is to say, it'll be different for me. The results are predictable. Well, the good news, however, is the book of Judges is that although the people of Israel compromised and fell into sin, they were also delivered from sin when they called upon the Lord. God is faithful. And praise God that he does the same thing for us as well. Now, there's, there's a recurring phrase in the book of Judges. And that is, in those days, Israel had no king. And this seems to indicate that the book of Judges was written during the time that Israel had a king. Because why else would they say, during this time, Israel had no king? Uh, Some say it was written during the time of King Saul. As far as the authorship goes, in the Jewish Talmud, it says that it was Samuel as the author of it, but we really can't know for sure. We do know that the book of Judges does cover a span of time from Joshua to Samuel and Israel's history, about 335 years. The word judges in Hebrew means to exercise authority, to judge, govern, vindicate, punish. And and the judges, as we'll see, are just ordinary people whom God empowered to act with his authority to save his people from uh, their oppressors. Now, they weren't like the the kings. You know, it wasn't one king would die and then another one would take over. Uh, Rather, they were occasional deliverers that God raised up for a specific purpose. Now, with that, as a way of introduction, look now at verses 1 and 2 of Judges chapter 1. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. Now, Israel made a good start. Even though they've been promised victory, they're still seeking the Lord for the particulars. Same thing can be said for the church today. Even though God promises us victories in our lives, We need to seek the Lord for the particulars. He's given us his word for wisdom to obey, but we need to seek the Lord personally in in prayer to confirm his direction. Because there are times that God shows us what to do, but maybe not when to do it. And so we need to wait on the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I know you're leading me in this direction, but, but I want it to be in your timing, in your way. So we need to wait on the Lord and seek the Lord for the win. So verse three, so Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Now, was that a good thing, or was it a bad thing? There are those that say well, it's a good thing that the tribe of Simeon decided to go with the tribe of Judah and, and fought with them in battle as a part of ministering side by side as, as brothers coming in to that. But there are others that say it was a bad thing, God never instructed Judah to take along with him the tribe of Simeon because it resulted in an incomplete victory, as we'll see in verse 19. But but it shows us early on that they that at this point it's kind of the lack of faith in what God had called them to do, what God has promised them to do. Judah, you go out, and he says, you know, you'll go and 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 I'll give you victory in the land. And well, you you want to go with us? Why why don't you go with us? And so. uh, you know, either way, I can see both sides of it. It's good to get along in ministry and stand side by side. But sometimes God says what he means. It means what he says. And, and when he says you do it alone, then I'll be strong on your behalf. And you got to do it alone. Well, read in verse four. Then Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek in, in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. 
And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. So, there's some thumbs being cut off and some toes being cut off. And you go, what, what, what is that all about? 70 kings, I mean, had their thumbs cut off. And, and it's interesting. Why your toes and, and why your thumbs? Well, think about it. Losing those parts of your body resulted in losing your warrior skills. Without a thumb, you know, how could you hold on to your sword? You know, it's like no thumb is there, you know, so you couldn't really fight. Without, without a big toe, you really couldn't run. Now, this was something common that they would do in war. But this was wrong for the tribe of Judah because mutilation was a part of pagan practices. And they were acting like pagans in, in doing so. Now, with that said, it was also payback time for Adonai Bezek, you know, and, and he recognized this. He said you know, he conquered 70 kings and, and done the same thing to them. And rather than killing them, he, he incapacitated them. He humiliated them and, and treated his dogs in the, in the palace. And, and so he says, as I've done, so God has repaid me in verse 7. There's an interesting scripture in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, that declares, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 2, For with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Adonai Bezek says, Have I have done, so God has repaid me. Now this, I mean... You know, Paul does tell us in Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will pay, says the Lord. So this really could be, I mean, Bezek could be speaking the truth here. You know, God is, as I've done it, you know, God is taking vengeance out of me, and it's causing me to lose my, my toes and, and my thumbs as well. But again, for the tribe of Judah, you know, you can just see again, they're asking Simeon to come along and help them out. Now they're asking, you know, they're doing some of the pagan practices, cutting off the, the toes and the thumbs. Verse 8. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterwards the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains, in the south, and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they killed uh, Sheshai, Shai, Ahiman, and Tamai. From there they went against the inhabitants of uh, Deborah. The name of Deborah was formerly Kiriath Sefer. So basically this was Old Testament equivalent shock and awe. I mean, it's like they were successful. They said, all right, let's go. Let's, let's, let's keep going. And they, they were incredibly successful. Verse 12. Then Caleb said, whoever attacks and takes it. To him I will give my daughter Aska as wife. And Athenael, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter Aska as his wife. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Give me a blessing since you have given me the land of the south. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now, you go, oh, didn't we just read this someplace? Absolutely. Remember in Joshua chapter 15, we talked about, about her and this whole situation. Othniel here was the nephew of Caleb, uh, cousin of Aska, and, and he rises up and he takes the city, and so Caleb gives his daughter Aska to, to him for his wife. And then Caleb, Caleb's daughter here comes to her dad and Aska's for some springs, and, and Aska, uh, Caleb, you know, says sure, and gives her the upper and lower springs for that, that area. 
Again, I, we talked about this in Joshua chapter 15, but I, but I think that, that Caleb was killing two birds with one stone. Finding someone that would stand up for the Lord and do what is right and take the land and finding someone that would, was just right for his daughter. And, and I, you know, you can't blame a dad for that. You know, I'm going to give my, my beautiful daughter to the guy that, that shows himself worthy, you know, that can really fight the battles here and, and, and relies on the Lord. It's, all right, you're the guy, and I'm going to give my daughter to you for that. Verse 16. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went, and they dwelt among the people. Now the city of Palms, we know, is Jericho. Now, this really is just a genealogical, a genealogical note. There were those among the Israelites who were not Hebrew, but who, who were not enemies either, so they lived in the wilderness of Judah. Verse 17. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Also, Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ascalon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory, so the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Notice that. They stopped, and they say they, they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Actually, what this is saying is that they would not. Not that they could not. Because chariots of iron are nothing compared to God. God had already promised that he would drive out their enemies. And we're just seeing really a, a lack of faith in the promises of God. We know later on in chapter 4, Deborah is going to lead Israel into victory against an army of 900 iron chariots. Furthermore, the greatest victory that would come would be from David, and David never used iron chariots. In fact, it was David who would write later in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we remember the name of the Lord our God. So you just see, again, kind of this subtle downhill path that they're taking. Now they've still got some victories going on, but, but they're not the complete victories as God would have them. Uh, they, 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 they compromised and they fell short because of the supposed difficulty. And, and again, this goes to show you that partial obedience is disobedience and the fruit of disobedience is incomplete victory. I mean, you can't expect to have victory over areas in your life unless you're fully relying on God, obedient to, to God's word. But the compromise doesn't stop with the tribe of Judah. Look now at verse 20. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwelt with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now Caleb, remember him. I mean, Caleb was the epitome of trusting in God. No matter how bleak things look, you look to Caleb and go, man, we're going to take it. I remember Caleb saying, let's take the land. Who cares if there are giants in there? God is for us. But uh, the tribe of Benjamin, it's a different story. Verse 21, they didn't drive out all the Jebusites from their territory of inheritance and, and compromise with their enemies and the other tribes were, were there. I mean, just compromise. Verse 22, and the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. And the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So, I would say they're probably not very good spies. I mean, they're going to spy out the land, but 
hey, we want to spy out your land, but how do we get in here? Okay, we're not sure how to get in here, and, and they couldn't get into the city, and, and so they say, well, if you show us, you know, they, you know they, they say to them, if you show me, we, well, you know, we won't kill you. Verse 26, so he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go, and the man went to the land of the Hittites, built the city, and called it same Luz, which it is named to this day. Now, to be fair, the city was probably in lockdown mode and the entrance was hidden, but it still didn't justify these spies in compromising and letting this fellow go. Because why? The guy went out and started his own city. There's nothing wrong with showing mercy as long as there's repentance. But this guy said, no, you're going to destroy that. Well, I'm going to start my own city, you know. And, and, and you know, it's like, uh, you know, I'm going to show you mercy for stealing my car, you know, and, and but you got to be repentant. But if you go out and steal my next car, then, then you know, what's going on? Point is this, that when God shows you mercy, that doesn't mean you go back to your old ways. When people go through hard times and they receive the blessings and mercy and forgiveness of God, but then they soon find themselves going back to the old areas, rebuilding the old cities and doing the old things once again, you need to be careful because next time judgment may be shown instead of mercy. Well, the next tribe to compromise is that of Manasseh. Look at verse 27, all the way down to verse 36. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong, that they put the Canaanite under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or, the, or of Alab, Askib, Belba, Afik, or Rehab. Say that real fast five times. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, nor did the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Daphne drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Harris and Ijalon and in the Shalabim, yet the strength of the house of Joseph became greater. They were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akribim from Selah and upward. Again, what we see throughout this section here is many victories, but they were incomplete victories because of their disobedience. Judah hadn't fully driven out the Canaanites. Benjamin hadn't driven out the Jebusites. And now these verses tell us that this was, this was a trend. Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, and Athali didn't drive out the Canaanites fully from their territories. The Amorites actually forced the tribe of Dan out of their valley and drove them into the hill country. Remember back in Numbers 33, verse 51 through 53, the Lord had told them, when you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. 
totally drive them out was the command of God. But here, just a, a failure in their part to, the, to obey the voice of the Lord. Now, no doubt, you know, as they're doing this, maybe they start rationalizing their disobedience. You know, no, well, I know God said to drive them all out, but, but if we allow them to stay here, you know, and, and, and they actually want to be here on friendly terms with us, and then we're going to be stronger because they'll be our servants. Yeah, that, that's it. They'll be our servants, and they can cut our wood for us, and they can, they can gather, you know, our crops, and they can build our buildings, and we're just going to use them. Listen, whatever rationale they had, it was wrong when it opposed to what God had already told them to do. And I think we can do the same thing from time to time in our own minds when, when God has required us to do something or commanded us to do something, but we start to think, well, it doesn't seem to be in my best interest. So then we come up with a, maybe a better plan. A better plan than what God has already told us to do. I mean, think about that. Why would we even think that we could come up with a better plan than God's? Usually it's because we don't understand God's plan, and because we don't understand His plan, we don't want to obey Him. Or maybe we just, just don't like it. Maybe God is, is calling you to open up your home and then let some missionary stay with you for a week, and you go, Lord, uh, you know, that means I have to clean my house and make sure I have groceries, and, and we have to be in our best behavior. Lord, how about this plan? How about we put them in a hotel, Lord? What if we do this instead? But we fail to realize that God's got a plan. It's going to be great. And we need to understand it's not about us understanding. It's about us obeying. And yes, I have some missionaries coming to our home at the end of the month. And they're going to be staying at our house. They're going to be praying for us. But I'm opening up our house for them. But, but you see, I can go, oh, Lord, I don't like that plan. What if, what if we do this plan and we're not fully obeying the Lord? And we need to, whether it makes sense to us or not. Because sooner or later, we're going to find out that God's plan is always the better plan than whatever plan we can come up with. Because he's got infinite wisdom and he knows what the best thing is for our lives. Well, Israel did their own thing. They planted seeds of disobedience and now that's going to lead to reaping sinful fruit as they fall into idolatrous sin. Look now at verse 1 of chapter 2. As God confronts them on our compromise. Verses 1 through 5. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bachim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I, which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore also said I will, therefore I also said I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and the God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of the place Bakim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Busted. Busted. The angel of the Lord here, clearly God himself appearing in a human form, Jesus Christ appearing to the people of Israel before his incarnation, a Christophany. Uh, we know this is Jesus for two reasons. First of all, because the angel of the Lord here claimed divinity by saying he is the one who led Israel up from Egypt, made a covenant with Israel, and personally called Israel to obedience. Secondly, because this person appearing in human form before Israel cannot be the Father because the Father is described as invisible. But I want to point out that, that, that God comes to them in love first. You see, before God ever calls us to obedience or confronts our sin, He reminds us of His great love for us. He reminds us of His, of his faithfulness to us. I mean, Jesus confronts Israel in love, telling them, 
you know, I, I have done this. He says, says uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I said I would never break my covenant with you. And, 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 uh, and so he's telling them what he, he did for them. Then he confronts them. Then he says, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Why have you done this? Really, the question is stinging in its simplicity. Because there's never any good reason why we choose to be disobedient. There's never any good reason to sin. So the Lord then rebukes them for telling them that all of this, His promises uh, would come true. And I quoted Numbers 33, verse 51 through 53 a moment ago. But the Lord goes on to say in verse 55 of Numbers 33, He says this, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants to your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Same thing He just said in verse 3. They shall be thorns in your eyes, and their God shall be a snare to you. Their reaction, verse 4, the people lifted up their voices and wept. Isn't that, I mean, so typical of many people today? God shows them their sin, and they go, oh, I'm sorry, God, oh, I'm sorry. And they weep over their sin, but there's never any real change. And it just goes to show you that there's a great difference between sorrow and true repentance. And just because you're weeping doesn't mean that there's been true repentance. The man in jail may be weeping over the crime that got him there and, and got him in this miserable situation. He's sorry that he's got caught, but he's not sorry for doing the crime. Weeping over the fact that he's got arrested, but, but true repentance hasn't come. And it's proven in the fact that as soon as they get out of jail, they, they do some other crime and they get him arrested again. There's no repentance. It, the children of Israel wept in verse 4, and you read it and you go, oh, that's so wonderful. They're weeping. God touched their hearts. No, he didn't. It's all just on the surface emotion. They're going to well, they're going to weep for a while, but then they're going to go right back and do the same thing all over again. They're, they're, they're still not going to drive out the enemy. They're still not going to obey the voice of God, and they're still going to continue down that same path of compromise. So there's a form of religion, a form of godliness, but no true repentance. And the same condition continues to exist to this present day. Again, go to any prison and ask them, you know, if they're at fault, why they're there. Oh, it wasn't my fault. I'm innocent. It wasn't me. See, without true repentance, there can be no true forgiveness. Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, verses 6 through 10, the writer pauses for a moment and takes us back to the death of Joshua. Look at verse 6. And when Joshua dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the borders of his inheritance, inheritance at timnath Harris in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. With all, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Is not verse 10 one of the worst statements you can read? When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. What a dangerous thing to, to not have your kids know the Lord, the next generation know all that God has done. Keep your place in Judges chapter 2 and turn with me two books over to Deuteronomy chapter 11. 
Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16. The Lord warned uh, the children of Israel this very thing so this wouldn't happen. In Deuteronomy 11, verse 16 through 22. Verse 16. Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you, and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain, and the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord has given you. Therefore, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them like the days of the heavens above the earth For if you carefully keep all these commandments which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. So when when any child grows up not knowing the ways of the Lord, it's a shame to their parents. God's word tells us over and over again the responsibility of their parents. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Ephesians 6, 4, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. We live in a time and age today where kids really don't know what to believe because parents have said, well, you know, I really don't want to push my way, my beliefs on my kids. They need to grow up and find their own way. Really what they're saying is my beliefs aren't real enough to me to pass them along to my kids. Hell isn't real enough to me to keep my kids out of it. Jesus isn't real enough to me to tell my kids about him. I'm not sure of the way of salvation, but I'm sure that whatever path my kids walk in will be fine. And that's a sad reality of our culture today. We have kids that, that, that what Paul has said in the last days would be like 2 Timothy 3, 2. That lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Why? Because our older generation, like the children of Israel, older generations, has failed to train our children the way they should go. And so we shouldn't be surprised. Listen, if anything, if you still have young kids, it, it should encourage you to really let them have it. That is, give them God's word every chance you get. Tell them of the great things that God has done. Let them know the great things that God will do to those who love Him. I was told just the other other day uh, that Annie, my, my daughter Annie, came in. She, you know, I didn't know this that uh, when she was young, she used to come to the door room, our bedroom door, and listen to hear if we were breathing, because she thought that we might have been raptured out of here, and she was left behind. And this little four or five year old Annie, I mean, knowing at that age. Hey, there's a rapture of the church. Things are going to happen. And to teaching your kids when they're young all that God has for them. It's a joy to do that. Okay, back to Genesis chapter 2. Look now at verse 11. As a result of them not raising their children in the ways of the Lord. Verse 11 tells us, Then the children of Israel did, not, did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. 
And again, here's again the beginning of that cycle of sin we talked about earlier. The people fall into idolatry. The ungodly nations around them. They, they begin to worship the Bell and the Astrods. Bell was the god seen in the thunderstorms. He was a god of the intellect. Because the people there, they were reliant upon the rain. And, and because weather was a mystery to them, Bell was their explanation for everything that they could not understand. So he was a high god of the Canaanites, having control over the weather. What probably began as farmer superstition, asking Bell to rain in their crops, turned into God-forsaking idolatry. Now, Ashtoreth, on the other hand, was the goddess of fertility and sex. Worship of her usually consisted of having sexual relations with temple prostitutes. I'm sure the Israelites, at the time, you know, again, they they probably rationalized this. Oh, it's just a little superstition, you know, it's just a a little entertainment. What's a little pleasure? We still believe in our God. What harm can these gods do? And before you know it, they're in a full-blown idolatry. Same thing happens today. People seeking superstition instead of God. People trusting in their own intellect and hooked on the worship of the God of sex on the internet. Nothing new under the sun. God tells us not to compromise with the things of the world. Do not be like them. Have no fellowship with the works of darkness. Why? Is it because he's a big meanie in the sky and he wants to, he's holding on to us? No, because he loves us. And he knows how harmful sin is to our lives. It's how sin destroys families. And because those he loves, he chastens, so, so too God will do what he can to bring us back to the place where we need to be. Look at verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. So we see they served Baal, they served Ashtoreth, God was angry at them, and allowed them to be plundered and sold into slavery. Again, the, the, the Lord promised the cursings would come, and it happened. They were fulfilled. Verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them, Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. It's just really not a change of heart. Maybe an outward change, but not an inward change. The people would cry out to the Lord. God would rise up judges to deliver them. But right after their repentance came regression and the cycle would start all over again. Verse 19 says, They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn ways. That word for stubborn can also be translated stiff-necked. It was a word that was applied many times to Israel during their, their wanderings in the wilderness. It means stubborn, not willing to change, doing their own thing. This is interesting because it tells us that, that even though they had a change of location, even though they, they entered the promised land, it didn't necessarily mean that they had a change of heart. Wandering through the wilderness, they were still a stiff-necked people, and now they're in the promised land, and they're still a stiff-necked people. Listen, we should never think that moving to a new place, to a new church, is going to solve all of our problems. 
Because the problem is, wherever you go, you take you with you. And isn't that profound? But it's true. Wherever you go, there you are. Wow, profound, Tom. Because a new environment doesn't always mean a new attitude. And if you struggle in an area of sin in your life, in one place, until you deal with that sin, you're going to have to face it someplace else. Why? Because whom the Lord loves, He chastens. He doesn't want you to stay in that place of sin in your life. Finally, verse 20. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And He said, Because this nation has transgressed My covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded My voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. What a lesson. How we must guard constantly against setting our hearts on sinful things because we also, like the children of Israel, may get to the point where God allows us to have those sinful things in our lives because He knows it's going to bring pain. He knows it's going to bring bondage. To get us so full of that sin that hopefully disgusts us and like the prodigal son, we leave the pig slop and come home to our Father who loves us. This was the plan for the children of Israel to get them disgusted in their sin to have them remain with these other nations so that their hearts would be tested. Verse 22 says, So that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Understand, when we go through difficult times, it just may be a test. If you've been away from the Lord and God allows you to go through a difficult time, He may be trying to get your attention. You might be in the middle of a midterm. You know, maybe it's a a final exam. I don't know. But are you going to follow Him or are you going to not? As well as temptations. It can be a test. These nations were a source of temptation to the Israelites. And since the people did not choose to thoroughly remove these nations, God allowed them to be around it in order to be a test for the nations. Now, now why would they follow God or would they follow the world? Sometimes I hear people say, well, if God doesn't want me to, to give into this, this temptation, then He's going to have to take this temptation away from me. You've got it all wrong. God doesn't always always remove the temptation. Sometimes He wants to see if you love Him more than the thing that is tempting you. The Bible doesn't tell us to close our eyes when we're tempted and ask God to take away the temptation. The Bible says we are to flee temptation. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10.14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6, 10 and 11, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from their faith and their greediness and pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, God, and His faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Then again, it's fleeing and following. Fleeing that which is bad, temptations following the Lord. 2 Timothy 2, 22, Flee also, also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord. Out of a pure heart. Bottom line is, we need to be like Caleb, who knew what it meant to trust in the Lord without compromise, believe His word, stand on His word, don't doubt His word, and walk in faith. I think God is teaching all of us to be more like Caleb than not like the others who compromise over and over again. 
Caleb kept overcoming his enemies over and over, well on into his old age. He didn't complain about their existence. He didn't complain about their size. He didn't complain about, about how many there were. Just, just, he knew God would take care of them. In the same way we face all sorts of enemies, within and without, but the Lord is there. And he'll take care of them. We trust in him, rely on him, and cling to him. Hopefully, as we study through Judges, we'll see the importance of, of just passing those tests in victory, not in failure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this evening, Lord. 